This was the tone of all others to affect the mind of a lad like Fetis. He agreed to imitate Macfarlane. The body of the unfortunate girl was duly dissected, and no one remarked or appeared to recognise her. One afternoon when his day's work was over, Fetis dropped into a popular tavern and found Macfarlane sitting with a stranger. This was a small man, very pale and dark with coal-black eyes. The cut of his features gave a promise of intellect and refinement which was but feebly recognised in his manners. For he proved upon nearer acquaintance coarse, vulgar and stupid. He exercised, however, a very remarkable control over Macfarlane, issued orders like the great Basher, became inflamed at the least discussion or delay, and commented rudely on the servility with which he was obeyed. This most offensive person took a fancy to Fetis on the spot, plied him with drinks and honoured him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed were true, he was a very loathsome rogue, and the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. I'm a pretty bad fellow myself, the stranger remarked, but Macfarlane is a boy. Toddy Macfarlane, I call him. Toddy, order your friend another glass. Or it might be, Toddy, you jump up and shut the door. Toddy hates me, he said again. Oh yes, Toddy, you do. Don't you call me that confounded name, growled Macfarlane. Hear him. Did you ever see the lads play knife? He would like to do that all over my body, remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fetis. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, we dissect him. Macfarlane looked up sharply, as though this jest were scarcely to his mind. The afternoon passed. Grey for that was the stranger's name, invited Fetis to join them at dinner, ordered a feast so sumptuous that the tavern was thrown into commotion, and when all was done, commanded Macfarlane to settle the bill. It was late before they separated. The man Grey was incapably drunk. Macfarlane, sobered by his fury, chewed the cud of the money he had been forced to squander and the slights he had been obliged to swallow. Fetis, with various liquors singing in his head, returned home with devious footsteps and a mind entirely in abeyance. Next day, Macfarlane was absent from the class and Fetis smiled to himself as he imagined him still squiring the intolerable grey from tavern to tavern. As soon as the hour of liberty had struck, he posted from place to place in quest of his last night's companion. He could find them, however, nowhere so returned early to his rooms, went early to bed, and slept the sleep of the just. At four in the morning he was awakened by the well-known signal. Descending to the door he was filled with astonishment to find Macfarlane with his gig, and in the gig, one of those long and ghastly packages with which he was so well acquainted. What? he cried. Have you been out alone? How did you manage? But Macfarlane silenced him roughly, bidding him turn to business. When they got the body upstairs and laid it on the table, Macfarlane made it first as if he were going away. Then he paused and seemed to hesitate, and then... You had better look at the face, said he in tones of some constraint. You had better, he repeated as Fetis only stared at him in wonder. But where? And how did you come by it? cried the other. Look at the face, 
was the only answer. Thetis was staggered. Strange doubts assailed him. He looked from the young doctor to the body and then back again. At last, with a start, he did as he was bidden. He had almost expected the sight that met his eyes and yet the shock was cruel. To see, fixed in the rigidity of death and naked on that coarse layer of sackcloth, the man whom he had left well clad and full of meat and sin upon the threshold of a tavern, awoke, even in the thoughtless fetus, some of the terrors of the conscience. It was a crass tiby which re-echoed in his soul that two whom he had known should have come to lie upon these icy tables, yet these were only secondary thoughts. His first concern regarded Wolf. Unprepared for a challenge so momentous, he knew not how to look his comrade in the face. He durst not meet his eye, and he had neither words nor voice at his command. It was Macfarlane himself who made the first advance. He came up quietly behind and laid his hand gently but firmly on the other's shoulder. Richardson, said he, may have the head. Now Richardson was a student who had long been anxious for that portion of the human subject to dissect. There was no answer, and the murderer resumed. Talking of business, you must, you must pay me. Your accounts, you see, must tally. Fetis found a voice, the ghost of his own. Pay you, he cried. Pay you for that? Why, yes, of course, you must. By all means and on every other possible account you must, returned the other. I dare not give it for nothing. You dare not take it for nothing. It would compromise us both. This is another case like Jane Galbraith's. The more things are wrong, the more we must act as if all were right. Where does O.K. keep his money? There, answered Fetis hoarsely, pointing to a cupboard in the corner. Give me the key then, said the other, calmly holding out his hand. There was an instant's hesitation and the die was cast. Macfarlane could not suppress a nervous twitch, the infinitesimal mark of an immense relief as he felt the key between his fingers. He opened the cupboard, brought out pen and ink and a paper book that stood in one compartment and separated from the funds in a drawer a sum suitable to the occasion. Now, look here, he said. There is the payment made, first proof of your good faith, first step to your security. Now you have to clinch it by a second. Enter the payment in your book, and then you, for your part, may defy the devil. The next few seconds were for Fetis an agony of thought, but in balancing his terrors it was the most immediate that triumphed. Any future difficulty seemed almost welcome if he could avoid a present quarrel with Macfarlane. He set down the candle which he had been carrying all this time, and with a steady hand entered the date, the nature, and the amount of the transaction. And now, said Macfarlane, it's only fair that you should pocket the lucre. I've had my share already. By the by, when a man of the world falls into a bit of luck, has a few shillings extra in his pocket. I'm ashamed to speak of it, but there's a rule of conduct in the case. No treating, no purchase of expensive class books, no squaring of old debts. Borrow. Don't lend. Macfarlane, began Fetis, still somewhat hoarsely. I have put my neck in a halter to oblige you. To oblige me? cried Wolf. Oh, come. You did as near as I could see the matter, what you downright had to do in self-defence. Suppose I got into trouble, where would you be? This second little matter flows clearly from the first. 
Mr. Gray is the continuation of Miss Galbraith. You can't begin and then stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning. That's the truth. No rest for the wicked. A horrible sense of blackness and the treachery of fate seized hold upon the soul of the unhappy student. My God, he cried, but what have I done? And when did I begin? To be made a class assistant in the name of reason, where's the harm in that? Service wanted the position. Service might have got it. Would he have been where I am now? My dear fellow, said McFarlane, what a boy you are. What harm has come to you? What harm can come to you if you hold your tongue? Why, man, do you know what life this is? There are two squads of us, the lions and the lambs. If you're a lamb, you'll come to lie upon these tables like Grey or Jane Galbraith. If you're a lion, you'll live and drive a horse like me, like Kay, like all the world with any wit or courage. You're staggered at the first, but look at Kay. My dear fellow, you're clever. You have pluck. I like you. And Kay likes you. You were born to lead the hunt, and I tell you, on my honour and my experience of life, three days from now, you'll laugh at all these scarecrows, like a high school boy at a farce. And with that, McFarlane took his departure and drove up the wind on his gig to get under cover before daylight. Fetis was thus left alone with his regrets. He saw the miserable peril in which he stood involved. He saw with inexpressible dismay that there was no limit to his weakness, and that, from concession to concession, he had fallen from the arbiter of McFarlane's destiny to his paid and helpless accomplice. He would have given the world to have been a little braver at the time, but it did not occur to him that he might still be brave. The secret of Jane Galbraith and the cursed entry in the daybook closed his mouth. Hours passed. The class began to arrive. The members of the unhappy Grey were dealt out to one and another and received without remark. Richardson was made happy with the head, and before the hour of freedom rang, Fetis trembled with exultation to perceive how far they had already gone towards safety. For two days he continued to watch, with increasing joy, the dreadful process of disguise. On the third day McFarlane made his appearance. He had been ill, he said, but he made up for lost time by the energy with which he directed the students. To Richardson in particular he extended the most valuable assistance and advice, and that student, encouraged by the praise of the demonstrator, burned high with ambitious hopes and saw the medal already in his grasp. Before the week was out, McFarlane's prophecy had been fulfilled. Fetis had outlived his terrors and forgotten his baseness. He began to plume himself upon his courage and had so arranged the story in his mind that he could look back on these events with an unhealthy pride. Of his accomplice he saw but little. They met, of course, in the business of the class. They received their orders together from Mr K. At times they had a word or two in private, and McFarlane was from first to last particularly kind and jovial. But it was plain that he avoided any reference to their common secret, and even when Fetis whispered to him, that he had cast in his lot with the lions and forsworn the lambs, he only signed to him smilingly to hold his peace. At length an occasion arose which threw the pair once more into a closer union. Mr K was again short of subjects. Pupils were eager and it was a part of this teacher's pretensions to be always well supplied. 
At the same time there came the news of a burial in the rustic graveyard of Glencorse. Time has little changed the place in question. It stood then as now upon a crossroad, out of call of human habitations, and buried fathom deep in the foliage of six cedar trees. The cries of the sheep upon the neighbouring hills, the streamlets upon either hand, one loudly singing among the pebbles, the other dripping furtively from pond to pond, the stir of the wind in mountainous old flowering chestnuts, and once in seven days the voice of the bell and the old tunes of the precentor were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around the rural church. The resurrection man, to use a byname of the period, was not to be deterred by any way of the sanctities of customary piety. It was part of his trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by the feet of worshippers and mourners, and the offerings and the inscriptions of bereaved affection. To rustic neighbourhoods where love is more than commonly tenacious, where some bonds of blood or fellowship unite the entire society of a parish, the body snatcher, far from being repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth, in joyful expectation of a far different awakening, there came that hasty, lamp-lit, terror-haunted resurrection of the spade and mattock. The coffin was forced, the cerements torn, and the melancholy relics, clad in sackcloth after being rattled for hours on moonless byways, were at length exposed to uttermost indignities before a class of gaping boys. Somewhat as two vultures may swoop upon a dying lamb, Thetis and Macfarlane were to be let loose upon a grave in that green and quiet resting place. The wife of a farmer, a woman who had lived for sixty years and been known for nothing but good butter and godly conversation, was to be rooted from a grave at midnight and carried, dead and naked, to that faraway city that she had always honoured with her Sunday best. The place beside her family was to be empty till the crack of doom, her innocent and almost venerable members to be exposed to that last curiosity of the anatomist. Late one afternoon the pair set forth, well wrapped in cloaks and furnished with a formidable bottle. It rained without remission, a cold, dense, lashing rain. Now and again there blew a puff of wind, but these sheets of falling water kept it down. Bottle and all, it was a sad and silent drive as far as Pennycook, where they were to spend the evening. They stopped once, to hide their implements in a thick bush not far from the churchyard, and once again at the fisher's tryst, to have a toast before the kitchen fire and vary their nips of whisky with a glass of ale. When they reached their journey's end the gig was housed, the horse was fed and comforted and the two young doctors in a private room sat down to the best dinner and the best wine the house afforded. The lights, the fire, the beating rain upon the window, the cold incongruous work that lay before them added zest to their enjoyment of the meal. With every glass their cordiality increased. Soon Macfarlane handed a little pile of gold to his companion. A compliment, he said. Between friends these little dead accommodations ought to fly like pipe lights. Fetis pocketed the money and applauded the sentiment to the echo. You're a philosopher, he cried. I was an ass till I knew you. You and Kay between you by the Lord Harry, but you'll make a man of me. Of course we shall applauded Macfarlane. 
A man? I tell you, it required a man to back me up the other morning. There are some big brawling 40-year-old cowards who would have turned sick at the look of the dead thing. But not you. You kept your head. I watched you. Well, and why not, Fetis thus vaunted himself. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain on the one side but disturbance, and on the other I could count on your gratitude. Don't you see? He slapped his pocket until the gold pieces rang. McFarland somehow felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. He may have regretted that he had taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere, for the other noisily continued in this boastful strain. The great thing is not to be afraid. Now, between you and me, I don't want to hang. That's practical, but for all can't, McFarlane, I was born with a contempt. Hell, God, devil, right, wrong, sin, crime, and all the old gallery of curiosities. They may frighten boys, but men of the world, like you and me, we despise them. Here's to the memory of Grey. It was by this time growing somewhat late. The gig, according to order, was brought round to the door with both lamps brightly shining and the young men had to pay their bill and take the road. They announced that they were bound for Peebles and drove in that direction till they were clear of the last houses of the town. Then, extinguishing the lamps, returned upon their course and followed a by-road towards Glencourse. There was no sound but that of their own passage and the incessant, strident pouring of the rain. It was pitch dark. Here and there a white gate or a white stone in the wall guided them for a short space across the night, but for the most part it was at a foot pace and almost groping that they've picked their way through that resonant blackness to their solemn and isolated destination. In the sunken woods that traverse the neighbourhood of the burying ground, the last glimmer failed them and it became necessary to kindle a match and re-illuminate one of the lanterns of the gig. Thus, under the dripping trees and environed by huge and moving shadows, they reached the scene of their unhallowed labours. They were both experienced in such affairs and powerful with the spade, and they had scarce been twenty minutes at their task before they were rewarded by a dull rattle in the coffin lid. At the same moment, McFarlane, having hurt his hand upon a stone, flung it carelessly above his head. The grave in which they now stood almost to the shoulders was close to the edge of the plateau of the graveyard and the gig lamp had been propped the better to illuminate their labours against a tree and on the immediate verge of the steep bank descending to the stream. Chance had taken a sure aim with the stone, then came a clang of broken glass, night fell upon them, sounds alternately dull and ringing announced the bounding of the lantern down the bank and its occasional collision with the trees. A stone or two which it had dislodged in its descent rattled behind it into the profundities of the glen. And then silence, like night, resumed its sway. And they might bend their hearing to its utmost pitch but naught was to be heard except the rain now marching to the wind, now steadily falling over miles of open country. They were so nearly at an end of their abhorred task that they judged it wisest to complete it in the dark. The coffin was exhumed and broken open, the body inserted in the dripping sack and carried between them to the gig, one mounted to keep it in its place, and the other, taking the horse by the mouth, groped along the wall and bush until they reached the wider road by the fisher's tryst. Here was a faint, diffused radiancy, which they hailed like daylight, 
by that they pushed the horse to a good pace and began to rattle along merrily in the direction of the town. They had both been wetted to the skin during their operations, and now as the gig jumped among the deep ruts, the thing that stood propped between them now fell upon one, and now upon the other. At every repetition of the horrid contact, each instinctively repelled it with the greater haste, and the process, natural although it was, began to tell upon the nerves of the companions. Macfarlane made some ill-favoured jest about the farmer's wife, but it came hollowly from his lips and was allowed to drop in silence. Still their unnatural burden bumped from side to side, and now the head would be laid as if in confidence upon their shoulders, and now the drenching sackcloth would flap icily about their faces. A creeping chill began to possess the soul of Fetus. He peered at the bundle, and it seemed somehow larger than at first. All over the countryside, and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs accompanied their passage with tragic elations, and it grew and grew upon his mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished, that some nameless change had befallen the dead body, and it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. For God's sake, said he, making great effort to arrive at speech, for God's sake, let's have a light. Seemingly, Macfarlane was affected in the same direction, for, though he made no reply, he stopped the horse past the reins to his companion, got down and proceeded to kindle the remaining lamp. They had by that time got no further than the crossroad down to Auchinclinny. The rain still poured as though the deluge were returning, and it was no easy matter to make a light in such a world of wet and darkness. When at last the flickering blue flame had been transferred to the wick, and began to expand and clarify and shed a wide circle of misty brightness round the gig, it became possible for the two young men to see each other and the thing they had along with them. The rain had moulded the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. The head was distinct from the trunk, the shoulders plainly modelled. Something at once spectral and human riveted their eyes upon the ghastly comrade of their drive. For some time Macfarlane stood motionless, holding up the lamp. A nameless dread was swathed like a wet sheet about the body, and tightened the white skin upon the face of Fetis, a fear that was meaningless, a horror of what could not be kept mounting to his brain. Another beat of the watch, and he had spoken, but his comrade forestalled him. That is not a woman said Macfarlane in a hushed voice. It was a woman when we put her in, whispered Fetus. Hold that lamp, said the other. I must see her face. And as Fetus took the lamp, his companion untied the fastenings of the sack and drew down the cover from the head. The light fell very clear upon the dark, well-moulded features and smooth-shaven cheeks of a too-familiar countenance often beheld in dreams of both of these young men. A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leaped from his own side into the roadway. The lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished, and the horse, terrified by this unusual commotion, bounded and went off towards Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it, sole occupant of the gig, the body of the dead, and long-dissected grey. You've been listening to Scotland's Halloween Collection. 
This episode was a reading of The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. The music in this episode was by Mitch Bain. You can find out more about the show on our newly revamped website, scotlandpodcast.net, and on social media. Just search for Scotland, a Scottish history podcast.